Okay, everyone, class is back in session. I'm Dorothy Doty, as you know. I'm your instructor for this series of video lectures on continents. And in this class, we're going to discuss voiding dysfunction, also known as urinary retention, in more detail with a primary focus on assessment and management. So let's do a quick review of the definition, types of retention, and the pathology, and then we'll move into assessment and management. So as we have said before, urinary retention means there's incomplete bladder emptying. There's a problem in the emptying phase of the voiding cycle. As a result, you end up with a constant state of bladder fullness. You're kind of overflow voiding, and some patients may have overflow leakage. So think of it almost as a full bathtub, and every time you add a little bit, some has to come out. But you never pull the plug, you never really drain the bladder. Now, as we discussed in a previous class, there are two major types of retention. There's acute urinary retention and then chronic urinary retention. Acute, just as it says, sudden onset, sudden inability to pass any urine, and if the patient has intact sensation, acutely painful. In most situations, there's a precipitating event. There's anesthesia and surgery. There's a type of medication that shuts down the urethral outlet, like a sympathomimetic, or maybe an anticholinergic that relaxes the bladder wall and precipitates acute retention. Sometimes it's constipation because that can cause severe outlet obstruction. Sometimes it's a urinary tract infection. Occasionally you'll have a patient who has chronic urinary retention due to prostatic enlargement and they suddenly develop acute retention. Now when we talk about chronic uh, urinary retention, these are patients who think they're urinating some. They say, well, I'm passing some urine. I don't think I'm really empty though. I never feel as if I'm really empty. If you ask them, is this painful? Usually they say, no, it's not painful. I just never really feel as if I'm empty. We always do post-void residual measurements when we have any reason to suspect any degree of retention. And in patients with chronic urinary retention, post-void residual volumes are typically 300 milliliters or higher. Now, we mentioned in a previous discussion that chronic urinary retention can be further classified as high-pressure chronic retention or low-pressure chronic retention, and that differentiation is very important. So you think about what we're saying if we say there is high-pressure chronic retention. Here, you almost always have bladder outlet obstruction, and you have a detrusor muscle that is trying to override that obstruction, compensate for that obstruction. So you have excessive contractile force. The problem is, when you get overly high bladder pressures, it interferes with urine delivery from the kidneys. So you end up with back pressure on the kidneys, hydronephrosis, and high risk for renal damage. As a result, patients who have high pressure chronic retention require urgent treatment. Low pressure chronic retention typically is caused by a very weak detrusor muscle or a denervated detrusor muscle. So it could be a patient with long-standing diabetes so that they have lost normal innervation to the bladder wall. And so now instead of getting a strong signal to contract, the bladder only gets a weak signal and you get minimal contractility. The one good thing about low pressure chronic retention is that it doesn't create back pressure on the kidneys because the pressures within the bladder itself are low, so there's not an obstructed flow. Most patients with low pressure chronic retention are at low risk for renal failure, so the urgency of treatment is dictated a lot by the patient's concerns. How big of an issue is this for this patient? And also by whether or not they're developing recurrent urinary tract infections just from urinary stasis. 
Now, in terms of what actually causes outlet obstruction, what causes detrusor hypocontractility? We've talked about this before. When you talk about bladder outlet obstruction, by far the most common is what you see on the top, and that is benign prostatic hypertrophy. And you can see that overgrowth of the prostate gland and increased pressure within the prostatic urethra can definitely obstruct urine flow from the bladder. In a female, a cystocele where the bladder tips down into the vaginal vault or pelvic organ prolapse can also cause an obstructed outlet. And finally, if you have a patient who has a suprasacral cord lesion, they may end up with that bladder sphincter dyssynergia where the bladder contracts but the sphincter does not open. So any of those things can create an obstructed outlet. In addition to those three very common things, of course you could have a urethral stricture or something else that created outlet obstruction. We talked before about the fact that the bladder really gets ticked off if it contracts and then there's obstruction at the outlet that interferes with complete emptying. So what we find in clinical practice is that obstruction and impaired emptying create a secondary urge pattern incontinence. So that the patient frequently describes frequency, urgency, possibly leakage on the way to the bathroom, but they also describe very poor or intermittent flow pattern, feelings of incomplete emptying, possibly post-void dribbling. We've said it before, but we'll say it again today, and, I'll, and we said it when we talked about overactive bladder. Anytime you have a patient who presents with apparent overactive bladder, they complain of frequency, they complain of urgency, they complain of nocturia, they say they just void little bits at a time after they break their necks getting to the bathroom. And sometimes they leak on the way. You never assume that it's overactive bladder until you rule out retention because there's so much overlap in the clinical presentation. Now, the second major reason for retention is impaired detrusor contractility. And that's most commonly seen in patients with long-standing diabetes or patients with sacral spinal cord lesions. But it can also be seen in a patient with multiple sclerosis or in your uh, much older patient who sustains some degree of denervation to the bladder. So let's talk about clinical presentation and it's very different among individuals with acute urinary retention and individuals with chronic urinary retention. So you can see in the slide on, on the top and to the left that is visible bladder distension. It's visible, it's palpable, it's percussible, and it's painful. And then if they do just a flat plate of the abdomen, look what you see on the flat plate. Again, this hugely distended bladder. With chronic, it's very different. So most of the time, the distension is not as obvious. It's more dispersed. We've already talked several times about the overlap between retention symptoms and overactive bladder symptoms. So the ones in italics are the ones that are overlap symptoms. Frequency, low voided volumes, nocturia, possibly urgency. The ones not in italics are the signs and symptoms that are unique to retention. That feeling that you really didn't empty. Uh, percussion findings so that when you percuss from the xiphoid to the symphysis, there's a change in percussion note indicating bladder distension. Suprapubic tenderness, so when you palpate the suprapubic area in someone in retention, they typically complain of that being sensitive to touch, being very tender. It is critically important to have someone describe their urinary stream or pick out their urinary stream from those four patterns. Because consistently, a patient in retention is going to describe a poor or intermittent urinary stream. Obviously, if you can do a uroflow, that's perfect. 
high post void residuals, that should be a test you do anytime there is even the slightest suspicion of retention. You never want to miss this. So if you think there might possibly be retention, you do your post void residual to either rule it out or to verify it. And we've said some people in retention have leakage, others do not. So what about definitive diagnosis? Well, a presumptive diagnosis is made just based on history and physical. So I have a male. He's been diagnosed with benign prostatic hypertrophy. He has bladder distension on physical exam. He has feelings of incomplete emptying. He describes frequency and urgency in nocturia. His bladder chart confirms that. Percussion findings indicate bladder distension. Palpatory findings show suprapubic tenderness. So usually it's fairly clear if I do a comprehensive physical and history, back it up with a uroflow. Bladder chart will show frequency. That's not diagnostic. Low voided volumes, not diagnostic. Nocturia, not diagnostic. So the point is, bladder chart for a patient with overactive bladder urge incontinence, bladder chart for a patient retention, they look pretty much the same. But your history will be different, your physical exam findings will be different, and your uroflow or description of urinary stream will be very different. Post-void residual is going to typically be higher than 250 to 300 milliliters if We've talked about the fact that there's no absolute cutoff. So those volumes on post-void residuals should always raise red flags. It's also helpful to compare voided volumes to retained volumes. So maybe I voided 150 and I retained 300. Then that's very significant. If I voided 100 and retained 100, that's pretty significant too. So even though that PVR of 100 doesn't sound like such an astronomical number, the bottom line is I'm retaining 50% of my bladder capacity. So you can look either at the absolute volume or you can look at voided volume compared to retained volume. Your analysis, we always do a UA. And someone in retention, they're at risk for infection. So you may very well find that they have bacteriuria. Anytime we have a patient where we suspect retention, and especially if there's any reason to suspect high pressure, chronic retention, if there's evidence of outlet obstruction, you wanna make sure that there's no renal damage. So most of the time, you would order a BUN and a creatinine glomerular filtration rate. If you find elevated GFR, elevated BUN, elevated creatinine, now you're really concerned that some degree of renal damage has occurred. Most of the time when we suspect high pressure chronic retention, we will do a renal ultrasound. And what are we looking for? We're looking for hydronephros hydronephrosis, trapped urine in the kidney back pressure on the kidney. Definitive diagnosis of retention, accurate differentiation between bladder outlet obstruction and impaired contra contractility, and differentiation between high pressure and low pressure requires urodynamics and a pressure flow study. Now, I don't want you to get lost in all the squiggles here because it's overwhelming. But what I do want you to notice is that on the top, that's your flow rate. And you can see that there's very low volume flow. And then if you come down to the green line, not the green line, I'm sorry. If you come down to the purple line, that is your bladder pressure. So you see that you have very high pressure on the part of the bladder. The bladder is squeezing very hard trying to force urine out not much urine is coming out. So looking at the PDET line, the, uh, that tells you about bladder pressure. Looking at urine flow tells you how much is actually coming out. So this is what you would see in a patient with bladder outlet obstruction. Now, most of the time, you're not the one doing these studies. Somebody else is doing these studies. 
but you want to know the significance. If they're reporting high detrusor pressures, low flow rate, that is high pressure, chronic retention, that means that patient is at risk for renal damage and that treatment is essential. So moving on to treatment. Most of the time you're not involved in treatment for acute urinary retention. That typically occurs in the emergency department, post-op on the surgical floor, occasionally in a urologist office. But obviously if you have a patient who cannot void, you've got to do urgent catheterization to decompress the bladder. Now, the volume obtained on initial catheterization is important. First of all, it helps you differentiate between just sudden onset of acute urinary retention and what they call acute on chronic retention, which means you have a patient who's in some degree of retention all the time, but then has an acute episode where they can't pass urine at all. If you get more than one liter in response to catheterization, it suggests that you have acute on chronic, that this patient has baseline chronic urinary retention and now a superimposed acute episode. Here's the other thing. If you get more than a liter upon initial catheterization and or if the patient is more than 65 years of age, those are two prognostic indicators for recurrent retention when you take out the catheter. So hopefully when you put the catheter in you get less than a liter. Hopefully your patient's a little bit younger because if your patient's younger and you get less than a liter, most of those patients will recover. Most of those patients, once you rest the bladder, decompress it, leave it decompressed for a few days to a week, when you take out the catheter, will be able to void. So let's say you have a patient who does come in and acute urinary retention. Goal number one, decompress the bladder. We just talked about that, so you've put in the catheter. Then you want to look carefully to see, is there any evidence that this patient has an obstructive lesion? Because if so, we need to manage that. We need to eliminate any urethral obstruction, any bladder outlet obstruction. So let's say this patient does have an enlarged prostate gland. That patient might require surgery on a fairly urgent basis, or frequently they'll start the patient on pharmacologic therapy. Specifically, they might put that patient on alpha-adrenergic antagonists like Flomax to open up the urethra, and they might start the patient on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors to begin to shrink the size of the prostate gland. You're also going to manage any risk factors, and frequently this comes down to intensive patient education. We have a lot of people out there who have enlarged prostate glands, and they're just as subject to colds and upper respiratory infections or to diarrhea as the rest of us. And like the rest of us, they're going to go to the pharmacy and they're going to shop and they're going to be like, oh, this looks good. This is a decongestant. That ought to open up my nose and make it easier to breathe. Yes, it will, and it will close off your urethra. Or I'm picking an antidiarrheal, an over-the-counter like loperamide. This should help, yes, and it will relax your bladder wall. Either one of those drugs could put you into acute retention. Now, if you could read the fine print, it would tell you do not take this if you have a history of prostate hypertrophy. The problem is anybody old enough to have an enlarged prostate gland can't read the fine print. So patient education, really important. Okay, so let's say you've decompressed the bladder now, the patient's had the catheter in for a week, you've looked at definitive management of any obstructive lesion, in the meantime you've counseled the patient to avoid antidiarrheals, to avoid decongestants, and to clear any medications with the urology team. Now we're going to remove the catheter and we're going to do what they call a trial avoiding or trial without catheter to make sure that they are now able to void and to void effectively. So you're going to track voided volumes and post-void residual volumes. 
Now let's talk about chronic urinary retention. Those are the patients that we're typically involved with, the ones we're typically taking care of. So again, we've got two groups of patients. We have those in whom the retention was caused by outlet obstruction, and we have those in whom the retention was caused by a weak detrusor muscle. It's really much better if the issue is outlet obstruction, because outlet obstruction can almost always be corrected. We can do surgery for an enlarged prostate. We can give medications to shrink the prostate. What if it's a female with pelvic organ prolapse and a cystocele? Again, we could talk to that patient about surgery or we could possibly use a pessary to keep pelvic organs in place, to keep the bladder in place. So if it's outlet obstruction, our definitive management involves attention to the obstructing lesion. What if it's a weak detrusor or a poorly innervated detrusor? So we're not getting a strong contraction. We're just getting weak contractions that only partially empty the bladder. We do not have great treatment options. One thing that has worked for some patients is sacral neuromodulation. So this involves implantation of electrodes right next to the sacral nerves and then there's a battery that's implanted in a little pocket in the buttock. And the patient wears a little control device. For some patients, this has made a huge difference in improving bladder emptying because now we can provide stimuli to the bladder wall to cause detrusor contraction. But it's indicated only for patients and non-obstructed retention. So we always start by eliminating any obstruction or ruling out obstruction. And then definitive management for a weak detrusor, we should at least consider sacral neuromodulation. The trade name for that, for the only device really on the market right now, is Interstem. So if you had a patient with significant retention and you were trying to compensate or manage a weak detrusor, that's the only definitive management out there. We certainly can't do surgery to make a bladder contract. We don't have medications that are effective in making the bladder contract. So right now, if you have a weak detrusor, the main thing that we have available to try to improve contractility is sacral neuromodulation. Well, what if this patient's not a candidate for sacral neuromodulation? What if they've failed sacral neuromodulation? Now they have this poorly contractile bladder, so urine's being delivered to the bladder, but the bladder's not able to effectively eliminate the urine, and the patient's dribbling all the time, maybe developing recurrent urinary tract infections from stasis. What can we do for those patients? As you see, our treatment options are limited. We could teach them to void on schedule and we could teach them double voiding. I'll come back to that. Or we could teach them to catheterize themselves at routine intervals so that they empty the bladder. Or we could put in an indwelling catheter, which is usually a very bad idea and therefore a last resort. So let's talk a little bit about schedule voiding and double voiding. This can be helpful for a patient who has mild to moderate level retention. So what you want to tell them is, we don't want your bladder to overfill before you, go to the before you go to the bathroom because it already isn't doing too well. It's not contracting very effectively. So we want you to start going to the bathroom on schedule, maybe every three hours. So you get up at six, urinate then. Plan to urinate again at 9 o'clock unless you have the urge to go sooner than that, and at 12, and at 3, and at 6, and at 9. So don't let your bladder get too full. Get your bladder to contract and empty at lower volumes. What's double voiding? Double voiding means you go, you urinate, you wait 30 to 60 seconds, and you initiate voiding again. Because remember, you have voluntary control, so you can tell the bladder contract again. And the thinking is that you can reduce the amount of retained urine. So let's say I've got you on a schedule, you went to the bathroom, you had 300 milliliters in your bladder when you went to the bathroom. 
you voided 150. You still had 150 in your bladder. You wait a minute, you initiate voiding again, you void 50 more. Okay, well that's not your post-void residual down from 150 to 100. It helps to prevent overdistension. That's the whole goal of scheduled voiding and double voiding. Okay, so now let's talk about clean intermittent catheterization. Now this is a treatment that has been around for a number of years. When it first came out, it was totally radical. The idea that you would put in a catheter and not put it in under sterile technique, and the idea that you would put a catheter in and then take it out and wait a few hours and put it back in and take it out. Because I know when I went to nursing school, the thinking was, that every time we did a catheterization, we risked urinary tract infection and urethral trauma, so it was much better to just leave the catheter in. But now we realize that leaving the catheter in is one of the worst things that we can do, and that putting the catheter in, draining the bladder, taking it out, actually mimics normal bladder function. So clean intermittent catheterization, now an accepted management approach for patients with weak detrusor muscles. We use clean intermittent catheterization on a short-term short -term basis for patients who have post-op retention, but we use it on a long-term basis for patients who have weak detrusor muscles. So you may very well be in the position where you're counseling a patient about clean intermittent catheterization and teaching that patient how to do clean intermittent catheterization. Sometimes clean intermittent catheterization is used in conjunction with antimuscarinics. Now remember what antimuscarinics do. They block stimuli to the bladder wall, interfere with bladder contraction, make the bladder more passive. You're like, wait, we have a patient in retention. Do we want to be using an antimuscarinic? That sounds so counterproductive. But remember, this patient's primary management program is going to be intermittent catheterization. The antimuscarinic is used as adjunct therapy. So it can be used if you have a patient who has a weak detrusor muscle but also has been shown to have high pressures within the bladder. Most of the time that doesn't happen. Occasionally it does. So you might be doing it to reduce detrusor tone. More commonly, we use antimuscarinics in patients who have leakage in between catheterizations, and we're trying to reduce the incidence of leakage. So we give the antimuscarinic just to keep the bladder relaxed and quiet, and then we use catheterization to empty the bladder at routine intervals. Most patients, on intermittent catheterization programs don't require that, but it is an option. So let's talk about clean intermittent catheterization. Some of you are very comfortable with this because you've used it and other people are like, I don't know, this sounds strange to me. So here are the principles and the benefits and things you have to think about. If you drain the bladder at routine intervals, you will, number one, eliminate stasis, which is a contributing factor to urinary tract infection. Secondly, you eliminate that chronic distension. And when you eliminate chronic distension, you improve blood flow to the bladder wall. That makes the bladder wall much healthier, much more resistant to bacterial invasion. So the combination of eliminating stasis and eliminating distension actually reduces the risk of urinary tract infection. It's a much better option for most patients than an indwelling catheter because when you put the catheter in and take it out, as we said, it mimics normal bladder function. Very critically, it eliminates that ascending pathway for bacteria. So if I put a catheter in and leave it there, the bacteria are like, great, just follow the yellow latex road right up into the bladder because that catheter goes straight up into the bladder, that's exactly where we want to be. But if I put the catheter in and take it out, I close the bladder neck, close the urethra, and close down that ascending pathway. 
Also think about patients who are still sexually active. A catheter is an interference to sexual activity, both mentally and sometimes physically, but primarily from a, a mental perspective. If you're managing with intermittent catheterization, you don't have that catheter. You don't have any visible reminder that you have a problem with bladder control. Now, one thing about intermittent catheterization does a great job of compensating for difficulty emptying. It doesn't correct problems with storage. So if you have a patient with combination problems, they're gonna need combination therapy. Who's a good candidate for intermittent catheterization? Well, you have to think, you know, intermittent catheterization does take time. You've gotta to get to the bathroom, you've gotta get out your equipment, you've gotta pass the catheter. So for most people, they need to have enough bladder capacity to store urine for at least three hours. A three hour interval is reasonable for intermittent catheterization. One to two hour interval is really not so reasonable. So you wanna make sure that their bladder has enough capacity to hold urine for three hours. Now again, what if I have a small capacity bladder? then we could consider antimuscarinics to improve capacity. Most patients have at least a three hour capacity. What else? I've gotta pass that catheter through the urethra. So I've gotta have enough mobility and dexterity to access the urethra and perform the procedure. Now, if my problem is longstanding diabetes and that's why my bladder's not emptying well, Yes, I probably have the dexterity and the mobility. What if the problem is that I have a sacral spinal cord lesion and it's knocked out all the innervation to the bladder wall so the bladder doesn't contract? Then you have to look at their overall mobility and dexterity. Are they in a wheelchair? If I'm female and wheelchair bound, can I reposition myself in the wheelchair to access the urethra? What clothing modifications do I have to make? How is this going to work from a mechanical perspective? So you might have to teach me things like, don't wear pants, wear gather skirts. You might have to teach me to take one leg and put it over the arm of the wheelchair so that I'm facing the toilet and one arm is over the wheelchair. And then I can pull my underwear to the side and pass the catheter. But I might very well need some extension tubing attached to the catheter so that it reaches the toilet. So you really wanna sit and talk with your patient and see what things they see getting in the way, what worries them about doing this. Obviously, the patient has to be cognitively intact because they have to master the procedure, remember the steps, remember when to do it, and they have to be motivated and committed because does it take longer to go to the bathroom and do intermittent catheterization than just avoid? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes, but they have to be on board. So sometimes you have to sell the program. Now, one of the things they're gonna ask you is, well, how often do I have to do this? I'm just trying to think how this is gonna work out with my work or with my school or whatever. Well, the usual schedule is to catheterize when you first get up, catheterize about every three to four hours during the day, and then catheterize at bedtime. Some people get up at night, but most people just limit their fluids before they go to bed and try not to get up at night. What about fluid intake. You want enough fluid intake to help prevent infection. So you want to keep your urine relatively dilute, but you do not want to overwhelm the bladder. You don't want to overfill the bladder. So for most teens and adults, the overall daily goal is somewhere between one and a half and two liters a day, which comes down to about 30 milliliters per kilogram of body weight a day. Here's the most important thing you can tell someone who is managing with an intermittent catheterization program. Don't bolus drink. Don't knock down 12 ounces at a time. That's gonna dump a lot of urine into your bladder at one time, and that is not what we want. We want to evenly space fluids throughout the day as much as possible. 
Now, how do I know that my fluid intake is right and my schedule is, in, is right, that I don't need to make some modifications one way or another? Well, here's the overall goal. You want to keep catheterized volumes at or below 500 milliliters. Or, if you've had urodynamic studies and you know what your bladder capacity is, what if I know my bladder capacity is 425? then I want my catheterized volumes always to be under 425 because I don't want any kind of overflow leakage, right? So you take your overall goal for catheterized volumes and then you can tweak your schedule and tweak your fluid intake. So maybe I'm frequently getting, let's say we're working with me and my bladder capacity is 425, so my goal is to catheterize somewhere between 350 and 400. And let's say the first few weeks I'm on the program, I'm frequently getting volumes 450, 500, and every time I get a high volume, I also notice that I had some leakage. So we need to change something about my program, and there's two adjustments we can make. And it's gotta be kind of up to the patient. Would I rather reduce my fluid intake or would I rather increase catheterization frequency? So I might say, no, I do not, I, I don't want to do it any more often. Let me just cut down a little bit on my fluids and see if I can't get back in the zone and eliminate these episodes of leakage. So you set, off, set out general guidelines and then you help the patient tweak it to get to where they want to be. Procedural guidelines are pretty straightforward. They've got to have access to the urethra. That's much easier for men than for women, especially if they're wheelchair bound. Now, if you have a female and she's not wheelchair bound and she just walks into the bathroom and sits on the toilet, yes, she can wipe her bottom, she can access the urethra. It's really your wheelchair bound patients where you have to spend extra time to be sure they can access the urethra. Critically important, hand hygiene. So they either have to wash their hands or use alcohol-based hand sanitizers. A lot of people just carry around those little bottles of alcohol-based hand sanitizer. There are also some tear packets they can use to do hand hygiene. Then they're going to lubricate the catheter or use a pre-lubricated catheter. Making sure that catheter is well lubricated is essential to prevention of urethral trauma. Rarely an issue in women because the urethra is short and straight, so it's easy to lubricate adequately. Much more of an issue for men, and if they don't do adequate lubrication, they're gonna be at high risk for urethral trauma and strictures down the road. So then they've gotten everything set up, they've got access to the urethra, they've washed their hands, they've lubricated the catheter. Now they've got to locate the urethral opening. In men, it's easy, they visualize the opening. In women, it's frequently not so easy. So we typically start out with visualization. So we'll take maybe a model, we'll take a mirror, we'll say, here's the urethral opening, here's the vaginal opening, here's the anal opening. You want the one on top. Long term, I do not want this female to be dependent on visualizing the urethra because you think, what if I'm out shopping and I go to the bathroom in the mall? I need to be able to pass that catheter by touch because if I'm using one hand to separate the labia and the other hand to control the catheter, I don't have a third hand to hold a mirror I don't want to ask the lady who came in after me. She'll go screaming out into the mall. So it's really important to teach them to insert the catheter by touch. Now initially, this sounds really scary to people and really, really hard. So one thing I say to women, have you ever used tampons? And the vast majority of women have used tampons. Well, the first time they put in a tampon, it's like, where does this thing go? And They've got a mirror out and everything, but nobody uses a mirror to put in a tampon. We put it in by touch, by feel. You're gonna do the same thing with this catheter. You're gonna get very used to passing this catheter by touch. So you insert the catheter. 
until urine flows. Now, one thing to tell men, because remember a lot of these patients do have some degree of prostate enlargement, so we wanna make it as easy as possible to get past the prostate. So you tell the male, hold the penis either straight out or straight up so that you reduce the curvatures. Women, it's all about separating the labia and then passing the catheter. Then you drain the bladder and slowly remove the catheter. Now men may benefit from a coude tip catheter. The vast majority of men tell us that it's much easier to pass the catheter if it has a coude tip because that makes it a little stiffer at the end and it has a little upward curve. So they want to pass it with that tip pointed up and it makes it much easier to slide past the prostate gland. Now what if you have a patient and they're in chronic retention, they're always wet, they really wanna do something to gain bladder control, but let's say this is a female who is wheelchair bound and she's like, I just can't do it. I just can't, I'm too heavy, my arms are too short, I just can't do it. What other options do I have? Well, you could refer her to a urologist and ask them to work her up for a continent urinary diversion. What is that? It's an internal reservoir with an abdominal stoma or opening, and then they just pass the catheter through that abdominal opening. Much easier than trying to access the urethra. Now, do I have to clean this catheter? Do I use a new catheter every time? Well, for many years, patients had to wash and reuse catheters. But in the United States now, most patients use sterile single-use catheters. And that's been supported by changes in insurance coverage and reimbursements. So Medicare and most insurance companies now cover 200 catheters a month. And that's more than enough for almost all patients because most patients use between four and six catheters a day and that gives you close to seven a day. The alternative is to wash and reuse, but again, we think that increases the risk of urinary tract infections and it certainly makes it much more difficult for the patient just to go through all these steps because then after they catheterize, they've got to go to the sink They've got to wash their catheter with antimicrobial soap, rinse it really well, dry it really well, and then store it in a baggie. They have to constantly check their catheters and replace them when they get stiff or brittle. People do not want to come out of a toilet stall and go to the sink and wash out a catheter because that makes them different. They want to be able to just go into the stall, pull out their sterile catheter, lubricated if it's not pre-lubricated, use it and throw it away and come out of the stall like everyone else. Now, are there any complications? Well, of course, there's always the risk of infection because the reality is you're pushing the catheter through the urethra into the bladder. So urinary tract infection is the most common complication. We don't have enough research on this, but we have more than we did a few years ago. And this is what we've learned. We've learned that the factors that affect your risk for urinary tract in infection include your technique, whether you're using single use or reusable catheters. Interestingly, how many people are performing this procedure? Are you just doing it? Is it you and one other caregiver? Do you have multiple caregivers? The more people involved, the higher the risk of infection. Are you getting in enough fluid? Because fluid helps flush the system, flush bacteria out. Are you catheterizing frequently enough to prevent over-distension? And what is your bowel management? Are you getting fecal contamination? So these are the prevention guidelines. We want people to use meticulous technique, not sterile technique but their hands should be clean. They should either have a clean catheter or a new sterile catheter that's well lubricated. They should pass the catheter, drain the bladder, take it out and either wash it or throw it away. Limit the number of people performing the procedure. Make sure you're drinking enough and catheterize on schedule. The guy who originally came up with this, he was working with kids with neurogenic bladders. 
And so he made a big deal out of this in teaching the kids, and he would tell them, the number one problem is kids not catheterizing on schedule, not catheterizing often enough. And he said, if you drop your catheter on the playground, I would rather you pick it up, brush it off, hopefully rinse it off, and use it than to skip the next catheterization. Now, obviously, he didn't really want kids picking up the catheter from the playground, but he was making a point to them that catheterizing on schedule was critically important in preventing urinary tract infections. You want to prevent constipation and fecal incontinence. You want to get somebody on a good um, bowel program, and you want to make sure they're doing very thorough cleansing after bowel movement so you're not getting fecal contamination. Remember that low estrogen levels increase a postmenopausal female's risk of urinary tract infection. So if this patient is female and postmenopausal, think about topical estrogen. When do you treat? You treat if they're symptomatic. And symptomatic means three symptoms out of five. So you onset leakage, which is frequently the first sign, cloudy malodorous urine, maybe suprapubic tenderness, maybe flank pain, maybe increased urgency and frequency, maybe fever and chills. The second complication is urethral trauma and repeated trauma ends up causing stricture and stricture creates outlet obstruction and makes it very difficult to pass the catheter. We rarely see strictures in women, but we definitely see strictures in men who have been using intermittent catheterization for a number of years. Protection, make sure that catheter is thoroughly lubricated. So some clinicians will teach patients to apply a large amount of lubricant right at the glands. So as the catheter passes through, it's picking up lubricant. Others strongly encourage patients to use pre-lubricated catheters. Pre-lubricated catheters are lubricated along the entire length. And you also teach people never ever force the catheter. Okay, so intermittent catheterization sounds like a pain, but it is ever so much safer than indwelling catheters. We see a lot of indwelling catheters. We see indwelling urethral catheters, the infamous Foley. We see some patients with indwelling suprapubic catheters. Catheters are the treatment of choice for initial management of acute urinary retention. They should be the last resort for management of chronic urinary retention. They should be used only if you have a patient who has high pressure chronic retention and they cannot be effectively managed with CIC or meds. So maybe I have a male who has refractory prostatic hypertrophy. He really can't pass a catheter either because of cognitive dysfunction or because of the outlet obstruction. He's not a candidate for surgery. We're waiting for the medications to take effect. Short term, we might need to use an indwelling catheter for him. Here are the currently accepted indications for an indwelling catheter. High pressure retention in a patient who has bladder outlet obstruction. A patient who's acutely or critically ill and they require monitoring of urinary output and or core body temperature. Short-term bladder management following neurologic, gynecologic, abdominopelvic, or neurologic surgery. Management of urinary incontinence only in a patient with a pressure injury on the trunk and a terminally ill patient for comfort measures. So you don't see anything there about convenience use. You don't see anything there about, oh, a patient with incontinence who doesn't want to do CIC. Indwelling catheters create significant risk for complications and they should be used as a last resort. So here are the current guidelines for use of an indwelling catheter. Put it in only if absolutely necessary and get it out as soon as possible. Your initial goal is can we get this catheter out within 72 hours? 
if you can, you significantly reduce the risk of catheter-associated urinary tract infection. So a lot of agencies now have an automatic stop rule where catheters are automatically removed either 48 or 70 hours post-operatively, 48 or 72 hours post-placement, unless there's a specific order to leave the catheter in place with rationale. So limit use. And I remember when we put catheters in just because it was easier for the patient and I think sometimes because it was easier for us, those days are over. We should be using the smallest effective catheter and balloon because the larger catheters stretch the urethra, they stretch the lining of the urethra and create little gaps and little perforations that allow pathogens to enter. We should be using a five milliliter balloon. Most of those balloons should be inflated with 10 milliliters of water to give symmetrical inflation. You always follow manufacturer's guidelines, but it's typically 10 milliliters of water for a five milliliter balloon. You wanna routinely stabilize the catheter so you're not putting traction on the bladder neck. You want to maintain a closed system. We never do routine irrigations. So that's a change in practice. In the past, we did do routine irrigations. But the one intervention that has been shown to consistently reduce the incidence of catheter-associated urinary tract infections is maintenance of a closed system. Of course, we know to keep the drainage bag below bladder level and to avoid dependent loops of tubing. We should be using meticulous technique when we empty because we do not want to contaminate the drainage bag. If we contaminate the drainage bag when we empty it, those bacteria will replicate within the drainage bag and will migrate up the catheter and into the bladder. So we're much more careful than we used to be when we empty um, the drainage bag. We should be doing gentle meatal care with mild soap and water or a perineal cleanser. We did betadine for a long time. What did we find? No reduction in infection rates. And sometimes there were questions as to whether or not we were increasing infection rates because betadine can be damaging to that very fragile mucosa. So better to clean with mild soap and water or a perineal cleanser. How often should we change an indwelling catheter? Well, current guidelines say every four to six weeks, but they will also tell you that is not an evidence-based guideline. We don't have evidence-based guidelines. But we know that they do need to be changed, and so that is the most reasonable interval, according to most clinicians at this point. Finally, we should change the catheter and the drainage bag at the same time. We should not be disconnecting them. Go back to your closed system. So I've seen a number of policies and procedures that say change the drainage bag every two weeks, change the catheter once a month. No, you should be changing them at the same time. If the drainage bag looks funky, if you could see the inside of the catheter, you would see it looks even worse. So if the drainage bag needs to be changed, the catheter needs to be changed. The only exception is a wheelchair-bound patient who is using a leg bag during the day and a drainage bag at night. And the guidelines for those patients are when they disconnect. So let's say they've disconnected in the morning and they've connected to their leg bag. So they need to have clean hands, careful technique when they do the disconnection and reconnection. Now they should disinfect the drainage bag. Now they've looked at acetic acid, they've looked at very dilute bleach, they've looked at hydrogen peroxide. So far, no evidence that it matters what you use to clean the drainage bag, just that you clean it. Okay, now let's talk about preventing the complications associated with indwelling catheters. And by far, the most common complication is caudi catheter-associated urinary tract infection. It's really scary when you read the data on catheter-associated urinary tract infections. 
First of all, we've learned that biofilm development begins within 24 hours of placement. So the bacteria migrate up the catheter tubing or from the periurethral area and almost immediately begin to develop biofilm. What can we do to prevent this? Well, we're right back to don't use them unless you absolutely have to. Use meticulous aseptic technique for insertion. Get them out ASAP, but definitely within six to seven days unless there's an overwhelming reason to leave them in. Those automatic stop protocols have made a difference. So if your agency doesn't have an automatic stop protocol, think about initiating one. And if this catheter is gonna be in short term, it might help to use an antimicrobial catheter. So now we have silver impregnated catheters. And if you're gonna be using this short term for your post-op patients, that might help to reduce um, cauti. Doesn't seem to make a difference when you're using the catheter for long periods of time. How do you diagnose cauti? Well, that gets to be an issue. When should you do a culture? When should you give antibiotics? If the patient has a catheter in, the presence of a catheter and two clinical signs and symptoms of urinary tract infection are considered indicative of cauti. So instead of having to have three, you only have to have two. So the patient has a catheter and now has new onset of fever and chills and a difference in the characteristics of the urine. It looks cloudy, it smells bad. Okay, they're considered to have a cauti. Time to get a culture, time to treat. If I have a patient who has a catheter, their urine looks cloudy, smells bad, and I notice that they're much more confused today than they were last week. So change in functional or cognitive status. If they have suprapubic or flank pain and cloudy urine, or suprapubic or flank pain and fever and chills. If they have cloudy urine and increased spasticity, or new onset of autonomic dysreflexia, that would be your patient with a spinal cord injury. Okay, so presence of a catheter, two clinical signs and symptoms of infection means you need to get a culture and you need to treat based on the culture. Now, we know that you can get a culture, you can obtain urine for culture directly from the sampling port. But if that catheter has been in place more than 14 days, before you get the specimen, you should replace the catheter. If you get the specimen from the existing catheter, you're likely to get bacteria that have been sitting there a long time, maybe not the ones causing the acute inflammatory response. And then you're gonna treat based on the results of your culture. If at all possible, you're gonna leave the catheter out until treatment is complete. You see that catheter on bottom, doesn't that look gross? That's biofilm. So cauti is the most common complication, but what about leakage around the catheter, or the Canadians call that bypassing? Why would you be leaking around the catheter? Well, of course, we always check first to be sure that the catheter is open, the tubing is not kinked, the the loops of tubing are lined up correctly, all of those things. If you're still leaking around the catheter, it's because of bladder spasms. It means the bladder is literally contracting around the catheter. Why? Why would you have bladder spasms? Well, the catheter itself is an irritant to the bladder and the bladder neck. It doesn't want that catheter there. It doesn't want that balloon there. So bladder spasms can be caused by a urinary tract infection, that's one sign. Could be caused by very concentrated urine. Can be caused by fecal impaction. Likely to be caused by a large balloon. Or if the catheter is not stabilized and it's tugging on the bladder neck. And it can also be due to an obstruction in the catheter. If you've got a lot of biofilm buildup, you get a lot of incrustation, then maybe urine's not flowing through the catheter very well, so it's flowing around. What's the first thing people think to do if someone's leaking around the catheter? How many of you have seen or heard people talk about, she's leaking around that 18, I'm gonna put in a 20. 
She's leaking around the five milliliter balloon. I'm gonna put in a 30 milliliter balloon. That is the worst thing we can do. The larger the catheter, the greater the irritant effect. The larger the balloon, the greater the irritant effect. So do not replace a catheter with a larger catheter or a larger balloon because of bypassing. Look for the causative factors, correct the causative factors. If you need to give them something to reduce bladder spasms, okay, but don't put in a larger catheter. Incrustation is the third complication. And if you look at the uh, slide on the bottom, that's what incrustation looks like. You've got all this buildup within the catheter and around the catheter. So pretty rapidly, you start to get obstruction to flow because of all this buildup in the catheter lumen. So then it's like, well, what causes incrustation? Well, what we know is that you're either prone to incrustation or you're not. You're either a blocker or you're not a blocker. And it probably has to do with some of the metabolites in your urine. That hasn't been well defined. What we do know is routine irrigations do not help. The only time routine irrigations are beneficial is if you have blockage due to blood clots. We do know that it's helpful to use a silicone-based catheter or a hydrogel-coated catheter because the hydrogel coating and the silicone coating are much more resistant to incrustation. <clears throat> so replace your standard catheter with a silicone or a hydrogel catheter. And beyond that, the most important and most helpful intervention is to routinely change the catheter based on that patient's patterns of obstruction. <clears throat> so if your data shows that by four weeks post-placement, I almost always obstruct, you should change my catheter between three and four weeks. <clears throat> now look at the, <coughs> excuse me, look at the bottom statement in italics. This is so important because there's still people who don't understand this. We should not be using catheters just to manage incontinence. We should be using catheters only if there's a specific indication. Only if that patient has high pressure retention and can't manage any other way. Or the patient has incontinence and a pressure injury on the trunk or the patient has incontinence and is terminally ill, and this is for comfort. Okay, so <clears throat> if I have a patient and they do need an indwelling catheter, would it be better to use a suprapubic? Are there benefits to suprapubic catheters over urethral catheters? We have some data on this. There are some benefits if we're using the catheter on a long-term basis. First of all, a suprapubic catheter will protect the bladder neck. A urethral catheter over time can destroy the bladder neck, the internal sphincter, and destroy contents. So it will protect the bladder neck. Um, most studies show a reduced risk of medical device-related pressure injuries if I have someone who's wheelchair-bound or bed-bound and I, I have a urethral catheter, I have to be constantly vigilant to make sure they're not rolling over on the catheter and sustaining a pressure injury. And there's reduced interference with sexual function. But interestingly, there is no difference in urinary tract infection rates long-term between a suprapubic and a urethral catheter. You might think there would be, but there isn't. So you have to look at your patient to determine would this patient be a better candidate for a suprapubic as opposed to urethral catheter. So in summary, you can have patients in acute urinary retention, you can have patients in chronic urinary retention. Retention is always caused by one of two things. Either you have a poorly contractile detrusor or you have bladder outlet obstruction. If you have chronic urinary retention, it's usually further classified as either low pressure chronic retention, which is usually due to a weakly contractile detrusor, or you have high pressure chronic retention caused by bladder outlet obstruction. Your presumptive diagnosis is gonna be based on history and physical. 
uroflow results or their description of their urinary stream, and post-void residual volumes. To accurately distinguish between a poorly contractile detrusor and bladder outlet obstruction, to accurately differentiate between high-pressure chronic retention and low-pressure chronic retention, you have to have urodynamics with a pressure flow state. And management is going to come down to what's the etiology. If it's bladder outlet obstruction, your focus is eliminate the obstructing lesion. Treat that hypertrophy of the prostate. Manage the pelvic organ prolapse, whatever. If the problem is a weakly contractile detrusor, we can look at sacral neuromodulation to see if we can improve contractility. Beyond that, we're compensating for poor contractility, either via in-and-out catheterization or indwelling catheterization. And that's it for retention. Thank you.